What does it take to transform a major American city from the verge of blight to a vibrant urban center listed among the best places in the United States to live, especially for millennials? Tom McDaniel is a transformational personality who is deeply involved in the continual revitalization of Oklahoma City. And he's my guest on this episode of The Spirit of Leading. I'm Garland McWaters. Tom McDaniel has a distinguished career in leadership that includes vice chairman of Kermagoo Corporation. He was president of Northwestern Oklahoma State University, president of Oklahoma City University, and now he's president of the American Fidelity Foundation. And he is serving in a volunteer capacity as the Citizens Advisory Board Chairman of the MAPS 3 Initiative. Tom, thank you so much for taking time today to join us on The Spirit of Leading. Garland, it's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I grew up in the Oklahoma City area, and I was here kind of in those days, back in the 1970s, 1980s. And when we talk about transforming Oklahoma City, we kind of have to go back there for context, don't we? We do. Because that was Penn Square, and there's a lot of people listening to this who probably weren't even born during the Penn Square days, but I remember Penn Square and uh, watching the news in the afternoon and watching the city. My friends lined up in the line at Penn Square Bank trying to get their money out, and they couldn't get it. And uh, then the, the collapse, the, the, the almost cataclysmic collapse in the financial industry and the ripple effect of what that had around the country and the oil boom going bust at the same time. And it was, we were kind of down in the mouth in Oklahoma City about that time, weren't we? Well, we really were. The early 80s uh, saw some really uh, difficult times in the energy business, and obviously that impacted the financial institutions. And the ripple effect really carried across America. Yeah, it did. And it was big news for a long time. A long and, time. And, and, uh, and I think there were books written about it, and, and uh, it was probably the very first large financial crisis that uh, the United States experienced, at least in modern times, before the 2008 collapse. I believe so. So it was, pretty, it was pretty detrimental. And being right here sort of at ground zero of that, I remember, oh boy, people were just walking around long-faced, and it was, it was a sad time. And it was sort of out of that that uh, Mayor Ron Norick at that time and some members of the city council or the, the Chamber of Commerce came up with this idea of the MAPS project, which yes. was pretty progressive at that time. Yes, I think it was born, like many things are, out of disappointment. Uh, we had had some really uh, difficult days here in the early 80s, uh, late 70s. The price of oil had dipped. You may remember there were some long lines for, for gasoline at stations during those days. And uh, uh, Oklahoma City uh, really made a big effort to land uh, a, a, an agreement with United Airlines. I remember that. To, for this to be a hub, for Oklahoma City to be a hub. Even went so far as to uh, ask the voters to approve a one-cent sales tax to raise money for incentives to invite uh, United Airlines to come. And it was one of, and Ron, Ron Norick was the mayor and, and, uh, and walked the streets in support of that. The voters approved it. Uh, the incentive package was probably the best that United Airlines uh, had to review. But uh, the word came down, they weren't coming. They were going to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the beginning of, gee, 
we probably aren't going to be able to rely on someone else coming in here uh, bringing all the jobs and and the answer that they had given us about why not was our people don't want to live there uh, you need to improve your you need to improve your infrastructure and we just don't see anything to do there and I think it was a real uh, I'm going to say clarion call to the leaders of the city that uh, we weren't no white knight was going to come in and do it for us uh, if we were going to uh, if we were going to make things better here we were going to have to invest in ourselves and so there are many ideas that were reviewed uh, the one the one that really got uh, traction was the metropolitan area projects maps and uh, that was the beginning of what I'll call the renaissance of Oklahoma City. And it's a hard uh, reality to face sometimes, isn't it? That, boy, uh, nobody likes us, and we have to make some changes, uh, or we're probably not going to be successful. We're going to have to be a place that people want to be and want to raise their families and can find opportunity. Exactly, Garland. I think the thing that really motivated everyone, and on reflection, they could see that uh, their children were wanting to go to college and go somewhere else and get a job and and have their life somewhere else so to create a place where your children and your children's children would want to live and raise their family i think was a strong motivator for selling the maps projects to the citizens of oklahoma city and uh, it's here we are 35 years later plus i guess and people who visit oklahoma city today who haven't been here during those 35 years would certainly see uh, a very significant difference in the look of Oklahoma City and the feel of Oklahoma City and, of course, the spirit of the place as well. I think that's exactly right. In fact, in my job as chairing the Citizens Advisory Board for MAPS, uh, I am called to meetings frequently with cities from all over America, and the question is, how did you guys do this? Uh, what's happened? We remember Oklahoma City of the 1980s, and now here we are in 2016, and it's a completely different place. How did you do it? Well, when they come and say, well, gee, how did you do it? You can say, well, it wasn't easy. Well, that's true. It wasn't easy, but uh, it's, it did take some uh, visionary leadership and uh, cooperation among a lot of different parties that, uh, that uh, has been successful in making this happen. Well, that's the spirit of what I want to talk about on this podcast particularly is what does it take for a community to come together and realize we have a, a vested interest in doing something as a community, but it takes uh, some soul searching sometimes too to go through that process. And, and then uh, how do you get all of those ideas on the table and how do you filter through all of those ideas to come up with something that everyone can kind of get behind and support? And that's part of what you're involved in as I understand it. Well, it is. I, I think in those, in those first days trying to, trying to galvanize support for maps in the early 90s, the realization that we needed to do something and not, not, and not just be what we were and what we were apparently had become uh, to the next generation, uh, we, there had to be some change. And then almost there was, a, there was a bolt out of the blue that jarred us when the Murrah building was bombed uh, on April the 19th, 1995 that really, uh, I think, stunned everyone and, but created what has come to be known as the Oklahoma standard. Uh, some of the people who've written about it said, 
from out of state said this was the only place I'd ever been where there was a there was a huge calamity like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everywhere else I've ever been, people were running away from it. In Oklahoma, everybody was running toward it to help. Right. And I think we all realize that if there was anything, any single thing that was unique, is that we had a spirit in Oklahoma, and we had really good people here, uh, and we had to sort out a way to capitalize on that. Sometimes it takes a crisis like that to make us take a step back and think about who we are and what we're about and what we want to do. In fact, uh, we might tell our listeners that I'm, we're recording this a few days after the shooting in Orlando. And this morning on television, as I was preparing to come to record this podcast with you, I heard Tom Brokaw, and he referenced specifically Oklahoma City and the Mura bombing and how it galvanized and changed the community. And he referred to that Oklahoma City standard, that standard. And sometimes it takes a moment for, for us to sober us up and to make us think about what, what's next for us. I think uh, from the 1993 vote for MAPS uh, galvanized by what happened in April of 1995, I think our community came together. And, and to people who come here to visit about how do you do this, I would say m- mainly we have a great sense of cooperation. Uh, we have... We have uh, identifiable goals and city government, state government, uh, the business community and the citizens in the neighborhoods all are pointed in the same direction. And when you have that, uh, you're able to do things that you might not have ever imagined. Let's talk about getting pointed in the same direction, because I think that is a, a, a principle that really speaks to any kind of mission-driven effort, whether it's for a single business or it's a community or it's a nation. How is that working in MAPS? Where does the voice come from? How does that focus? And who is, is it many people or is it one person? Or how does that happen in, in coming up with what the direction is going to be for these projects? Well, I'm sure if you ask any of our mayors, they would say it was many people and continues to be many people. But I think in each instance, in in the first MAPS project, there were many voices that said we need to do this and this. But the the unifying voice was Ron Norix. He was the mayor of our city. He put his personal reputation on the line. MAPS has always had several tenets that are unusual. One is a lot of public output uh, input up front about what should be the projects. Point two: This is not a. This is these are transformational projects. These are not that, that will spur private investment and create jobs. These are not filling the potholes. I mean, these are not. Let's get the laundry out every day. These are transformational projects that can change who we are and what we're doing. And the second part was no debt. We're going to create a one-cent sales tax for a certain period of time, and we can project what we think that will earn, and we won't spend, we won't create any debt. And so we'll just spend the money as it comes in, which means that it's going to have to be carefully planned. In, in the case of the maps we're working on now, a huge geometry problem, trying to sort out how to, how to make the projects fit with as the money comes in. And that was part of MAPS 1, and that put 
built a downtown ballpark, a new basketball arena, also put water in the river, uh, several things that uh, were were game changers for Oklahoma City. And Ron Norick and the Chamber of Commerce and many other people led the effort, but I would say he, he was out in the forefront. By the time it came time for the next Mavs iteration, a few years later, we had another very terrific leader in our town, Kirk Humphreys was the mayor, and he led the effort for Maps for Kids. And that was really an unusual and transformational idea as well. Running the schools in the state is the state's obligation, not the city's. So it was very unusual for a city to undertake a city sales tax to spend the money on schools that they didn't operator own. It was uh, an effort that has just recently been finished here 20 years later with uh, the completion of the John Rex uh, Downtown School, which was the final Maps for Kids project. So then along in 2009 uh, came a list of new projects uh, that was um, the result of a website that had been created, much input from citizens all over town, much discussion, to some degree consternation. Not everybody's project got on the list. And then uh, in 2009, we had an election for MAPS 3, and it passed. And it was all or nothing. So you didn't say, I like the convention center, but I don't like the park. I mean, you could not choose your projects. Each of the MAPS endeavors has, has been that. So all of us who work on it today, Garland, are deeply committed to making sure that we do it right so that there will be a possibility of a MAPS 4 in the days ahead because this MAPS brand has come to be the brand by which our city is known around America and I might say around the world. Well, it's a very impressive story, and there, there are so many leadership principles packed into what you just said. I mean, I could, like, teach a whole course on this. The idea of uh, so many people being involved and so many voices coming into it. And there's a principle that I've, that people will support the things they help to create. Well said. And if they, if they feel like they had a voice in the making of it, they're more likely to be, uh, go out there and support it and be a champion for it and give up their time and their resources to see that it comes through because it's a part of who they are. Yes, and then this additional factor, the mayor and city council, who are the decision makers about this, uh, everybody else is in an advisory capacity. Uh, they, they created by ordinance a process that would guarantee that the citizens of Oklahoma City had a voice in the process from beginning to end. So that process manifested itself by the creation of the Citizens Advisory right. Board. It's made up of 11 people. They're there is one member from each of the eight wards of Oklahoma City, so broad participation. There are two uh, uh, at-large members appointed by the mayor. I'm one of those persons. Then there is a city council member that sits on the Citizens Advisory Board, and that rotates every year. Then there are subcommittees for every project, and we have, we have uh, eight projects, and so everyone has its own subcommittee to oversee that particular project, and it is chaired by a member of the Citizens Advisory Board. So there is connectivity from the city council to the citizenry all the time, and all the meetings are open to the public. That's a fantastic structure to make sure that there is a communication up and down that full line from the front lines right up into the policymaking 
uh, city council chambers. It speaks to what you said earlier, that it's not just a single voice. It's many voices, although we kind of turn to that single voice that is the elected leader of our community who sort of speaks on behalf of the whole project. As, a, as the chair of the Citizen Advisory Board, uh, I'm sure not everything goes smoothly. And I'm wondering how, as the leader of that group now, uh, what skills you, you rely on for yourself to kind of pull together those people and kind of keep them focused on what their mission is and not let, these, uh, let what could be some differences become issues or problems. Well, there are several things involved. One of them that I that I intended to say uh, when you had asked me another question was that in MAPS 3, probably the greatest asset that we had was having Mayor Mick Cornett be the leader of it. So he was, he was the guy who led that effort publicly. All the polling that we did said, if Mayor Cornett isn't leading the effort, this may or may not pass. So he did that, and, and he faced uh, the same thing that we're facing now that you've asked about, and that is there, there are disagreements. There are disagreements about the projects, and even now, uh, all through the process, there, it, there are so many things uh, when you're spending roughly $800 million of the public's money on eight different projects over a decade, uh, will there be some bumps in the road? Did we, did we anticipate in December 2009 what a new modern transit streetcar might cost in 2016? I mean, it, the, the process is fraught. Uh, and I, th I think what guides us is this, and, and I'll begin by saying the first meeting of the Citizens Advisory Board, I did not know a single other person that was on it which was a shock to me because I'd lived here a long time and I thought I knew a lot of people and I didn't think the mayor could appoint a citizens advisory board where I wouldn't know anyone else. And I was, and I was shocked that I didn't know anyone, but the quality of the people was wonderful. And many of them think about things different ways. Uh, I am a chamber of commerce kind of business guy that likes to look at the numbers, and we have um, uh, one of my favorite people on the um, advisory board is Mike Dover, who is a, a caring liberal person who ran Variety Care here. He, he brings a passion and a concern for can we make this available to every citizen? Can we, you know, how are we, how are we going to do this in a way that's socially acceptable? And so I just say we don't all come at it in the same way. But what I think we do have, and we did agree on from the outset, is that we all have the same goal. We want to deliver to the taxpayers of Oklahoma City and its citizens what they were promised when they were asked to vote for MAPS 3. So as to your principle of leadership, I think that uh, from my viewpoint, uh, this is the first time that I've ever had a, quote, job where we didn't have some structure where A reported to B and B reported to C. And so you, you had something to say about salary. You have something to say about whether or not they continue in that capacity or not. You have something to say about promotions. None of that here. None of that. Right. All we have is the hope that we can each inspire each other to engage 
to 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 give it your best effort and be accepting of others, uh, accepting of other people's ideas. Empower them, make them feel comfortable to say and do what they think they ought to do, and ultimately, agree that the decision makers are going to make the decision, and that's the mayor and the city council. But we all can say, have our say about it, and can be engaged in it in a collegial way. And what you described was basically a collaborative process. Absolutely. And a collaborative process means you have to take time to listen and understand and engage and respect so many different perspectives in the discussion. Absolutely. I I think that uh, where everyone has a voice, uh, our board feels like they are representative of the citizens of the city and they represent a point of view and provide a voice for the citizens. And we're all prepared to accept the decision that this that the mayor and the city council ultimately make about about how the money is to be spent but we take it very seriously to be engaged and to work closely with each other as we look at uh, transformational opportunities uh, even Oklahoma as a state uh, is always moving forward I say we are in a millennial transformation period. And what I mean by that is the different generations now are sort of blended in our, in our culture so that there is, a, there is a significant amount of all of them who are having a say. And so we're in this transformational place. And this is an opportunity for that collaborative spirit to really do something special. I say all that to ask the question from your perspective of having lived through this and been very, I like center and ground zero on a lot of these projects, what advice would you give us? What advice would you offer the state and our new young leaders to say, here's your moment. And if you're going to help create a future instead of just inherit one, uh, how would we go about that? What would you suggest we try to do as a state to move forward? I think the key for someone who is uh, hoping to be a part of the solution of the problems that we have as a city and a state and a nation is to get involved. I grew up in an era where my parents wanted me to go to college, but it had nothing to do with making anything better. They had lived through the Great Depression, and their their message to me was, you've got to get an education so you can support your family. And that was paramount in their, and they had, my father had just returned from World War II, and so their whole idea was, You've got to figure out a way to to survive and to make a living. This this latest generation, and I judge it to some degree by my children, who are all in their 40s, has a whole different outlook on things. And I think the one the generation just behind them does too. They've had they've had the advantage of getting an education and thinking about what they want to do to make things better, not just survive. And I see a lot of it. And if you would permit me the the luxury of giving you some examples. Sure. I always hoped that Oklahoma City would get as good as it is now so that my children would want to move back here because they all scattered in various ways to do various things, including school out of state and some things like that. And they're all three here now. And they're all in their late 40s. My oldest son is, is a lawyer with Devon Energy. Uh, and he, he and his wife have started a nonprofit here in town called Cleats for Kids, which keeps them both pretty busy, uh, gathering equipment and giving it to other people who don't have it. 
My second son is a state representative. He was called to public service, and it's really hard to want to be in politics these days. These, these, are, these are really hard days uh, for that, and he's running for re-election now. And my third son is uh, involved with the Dead Center Film Festival here. He's a filmmaker. But they all saw enough here that they came back from other states and other places to come here to make their life. And I think they did that because there are opportunities here. And they, they did it by getting involved. My son that is, that's the creative director for the Dead Center Film Festival volunteered to go on their board. But I would just say that if I were in my 20s and I wanted to my life to make a difference, I would get involved in something that I really cared about. I have this volunteer job that's probably going to go on for 10 years. I'm not in it because that it will probably mean anything in, in terms of my life, but I think it will mean something to my children and my grandchildren, and I feel very great about the time I volunteer to do this. When you were a president of Oklahoma City University, you were also engaged in a very aggressive capital campaign that really changed the complexion of that university. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that started and, and looking back on it now, what do you believe the contributions were to the community from that campaign? I'll just say I uh, am a lawyer by education and most of the jobs that I've had in my life relate to legal affairs. So going into higher education was a real change for me. So uh, I got the opportunity to go back to my hometown in Alva. There's probably not another university in the world would have hired someone without any more credentials than I had, but it was my hometown and they knew me. And so went there first, came to OCU, really loved the mission there, but could see that the infrastructure needed improvement if we were going to be able to, to fulfill the mission of the university. And we were, I'll just say, fortunate enough that uh, we were able to find people who wanted to help us. Wanda Bass, the widow of a banker in McAllister, Oklahoma, had a daughter that went to school there and she loved music and ultimately gave us $25 million to build the Wanda L. Bass Music Center there. And Herman Minders was also connected to Oklahoma City University, was a student there, wanted to give back. He gave us an equal amount of money to build the new Minders School of Business. So it was far from me doing it, but I, I'll just say that going to see them sharing the dream that we want, what we want the university to be and, and assuring them that we would be good stewards of their money and that we would do the things with it that they would be proud to see that would connect the generations. I think being able to convince them that uh, there was a future for the university uh, was the key. Well, I certainly commend you on your role in that. And I know in your current role as uh, head of the American Fidelity Foundation, you are involved in similar kinds of projects. How are you bringing that experience into this role that you're now in? Well, I have to say, after uh, many years of uh, asking people for money, uh, giving, giving it away is a lot of fun. <laughs> and so, uh, more fun, I might say. But I applied the principles in trying to make the charitable contributions for American Fidelity that I, that I thought were important when I was asking people for money. There's got to be a dream. I think that, there, I think that people 
will give you $100 if they think you need it. But if you want them to give you a million dollars, they've got to believe that you're going to do something with that money that will transform lives, that will change lives, that will create an opportunity that didn't exist before for young people who might not have had the chance. And I think that uh, buying into that kind of, uh, of an inspirational dream is what really motivates people to give. And I try to operate our foundation on the same principles. Well, that's a great principle, I guess, to wrap up this, uh, this podcast on. And if I might just take the editorial license of summarizing that, I might say it's one thing to have a big dream for yourself, but transformational dreams are not about yourself. They're about the well-being of a larger community and a larger, something larger than yourself. And those are the, those are the dreams and those are the ideas that really take hold and change a culture, change a nation, change the direction of a lot of things. So I want to thank you, Tom, for uh, granting us this time to visit with you a little bit about your experience and being a part of these uh, transformational projects with the MAPS and others. Uh, thank you so much for your service to Oklahoma City and to the state of Oklahoma and uh, best wishes on spending all that money that, uh, that you now have the opportunity to spread around a little bit. Thank you. Well, it's been a delight to be with you. Thank you. Tom McDaniel, president of the American Fidelity Foundation and chair of the Oklahoma City MAPS 3 Citizens Advisory Board, my guest on this episode of The Spirit of Leading. That's it for this episode of The Spirit of Leading, and thanks for listening. I also encourage you to recognize and appreciate any and all who are demonstrating the spirit of leading the way they conduct their lives, and particularly the way they step out and to demonstrate uh, their leadership in your organization or your family or your community. Be listening for our next installment, and until then, I urge you to encourage the spirit, to enliven the heart, to enlighten the mind, and to enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. Live each and every day empowered. I'm Garland McWaters. Mm -hmm.